Again, my name's Matthew, by the way, and I'm the lead pastor here. Um, Wesley is going to come and speak to us in a moment, but first of all, we're going to light this week's Advent candle. It's the third uh, Sunday of Advent, and the theme for the third Sunday is love, and we're going to light the pink candle. Um, but before we do that, we're going to sort of take this moment to reflect a little bit and pray for the situation in Palestine and the conflict between Israel and, and Palestinians, both on the West Bank and especially at the moment in Gaza. And you know, Christmas time um, is the time when we sing about that part of the world, right? We sing about Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank, uh, where things are, you know, uh, really intense right now. Um, and we sing about, or we don't, well, we sometimes sing about it, but we tell the story of uh, Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt, um, an ancient Coptic tradition says that they went through Gaza. I mean, it would be quite difficult actually to get to Egypt back then without going through Gaza. So these places are very relevant to the story that we're celebrating at this time of the year. And um, so we're going to pray for two very practical things. We're going to pray for a ceasefire, and we're going to pray for a return of all hostages. Um, and uh, I'm going to pray that in, in a moment. We're also going to have a time of silence where we can each pray in the way that we feel appropriate. Um, and we're going to light the candles now, um, remembering the pain and the suffering that so many people in Gaza are experiencing at the moment. And uh, we lit the first candle um, a couple of weeks ago now, a candle that represents hope, the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah. rather than hatred rather than vengeance um, and um, so let's just take a moment of silence now and, and pray in our own way and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer let's pray God, we pray with hope that we confess fades at times and we almost struggle to pray because situations like this one can seem so enormous, so deep, so wide, so painful, so devastating. But we pray in hope for peace. Lord, we pray for a ceasefire, that the powers that be would stop the bombardment, would stop the, the killing. Lord, we pray for a return of hostages, that families would be reunited. Lord, we pray for peace in Gaza, in West Bank, in Israel. Lord, we pray that your love would prevail through justice. We pray knowing that you are love, 
We pray in hope. We pray for peace. Amen. Also, just wanted to let you know, we have um, a couple of stations on, at the front on both sides that are, are dedicated to racial justice issues. And there's a new one there uh, today, which is actually about justice for people working in Montgomery County Public Schools who have spoken out on behalf of the Palestinians and have been penalised as a result. I won't go into any more detail about that, but you can pick up one of these flyers at the, either of these stations and there'll be a moment later in the service where you could pray there as well. Thank you. Wes is going to come and share with us now. All right. Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? It's a heavy time of year and um, for a lot of us, heavy for a number of different reasons. Um, and so even in the midst of celebration and all the lights, the um, thing I love about this time of year is we're reminded that uh, light always pierces through the darkness. Well, it's good to see you, Cedar Ridge. I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be able to share this message this morning. You know, this morning we're continuing in our series that we've called uh, Presence of the Past. This is week three of this series. Of course, if you missed any of the messages and you want to check them out, you can always go to our website, go to YouTube um, as well, and uh, you can look at any of the old messages. Um, so um, I'm sure there's some from maybe a year ago that you might want to go and check out. So feel free to do that. Um, in this series, we've been exploring the meaning and mystery of Christmas uh, through some of the holiday traditions. And um, this series has me uh, thinking about the family that I grew up in and the role of traditions in my family. Now, growing up, I don't think I would have said um, that I grew up in a family that was very traditional. And that's because uh, we weren't traditional in the sentimental kind of way, if you know what I'm talking about. I mean, we were much more pragmatic. We didn't have like an emotional connection to our traditions. We were much more pragmatic about the way we thought about traditions. There's that old adage, you're probably familiar with it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's kind of how we treat it traditions. Uh, if they worked last year, if they worked yesterday, if they worked last week, they'll work again. And so um, my family practiced traditions, but in a way that was more practical. And now, change to us seemed to introduce an element of uncertainty, and that made my family very uncomfortable. Now, in retrospect, as I look back at my family, we were a very traditional family. And in fact, if I'm being honest, I rebelled against that a little bit. In fact, if you ask my parents, they'd probably say I rebelled against it a lot. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't a, really a rebellious kid. I mean, not in that sense, but I was just more adventurous. Like my family was very stable, very traditional. They did the same things. They played it safe. I was more adventurous. I like to go out and experience and do and see new things. Now, I don't know if it has anything to do with age or um, probably that, or maybe it's maturity, maybe not that. Um, but I've noticed that I've started to develop a greater sense or a greater appreciation for traditions and the stability, the sense of rootedness that traditions bring. You know, Christmas is a very traditional season, right? There's food, there's decorations, there's movies, there's outfits that all appear this time of year only to be packed away in a box, physically, uh, metaphorically in a box, uh, only to come out again this time next year. And I think there's something strangely beautiful 
about the holiday season and the diverse traditions we practice this time of year. And I think in some mysterious, often unseen way, we're united by the diversity of our traditions. Now, before you think I've been drinking too much mulled wine, uh, I'm not naive. I see how divided our country is and how religion and even politics, or maybe I should say especially politics, are at the center of many of our divisions. So I'm not saying that we're unified. But I do think that if we lean in and if we listen carefully, that we'll see that there's a common yearning being expressed from people of different backgrounds and even different faiths this time of year. And it's a yearning for light to overcome darkness, for hope to crest over the horizon, for joy to pierce through the fog of sadness and pain. There's a shared longing for wholeness, for healing, for happiness, for peace on earth. And I think if we genuinely practice the love of neighbor that we read about in scripture, that we'll discover that there's an embrace that makes space for us to celebrate the divine presence among us that transcends country and culture, race and religion in a way that we can truly love our neighbor. I just gotta believe that it's possible to celebrate together with our neighbors, even when, especially when, we don't celebrate the same way. And I think it's some mysterious way we're united by our diversity of traditions. Now, maybe I'm being a little too much of a optimist, but I like to think that in some holy way, the holiday season is unifying, maybe even subversively in ways that we miss and that we ourselves have the opportunity to be love and light for those around us in the midst of the short, dark days of winter. Now this morning, we're looking at a practice, the practice of putting up nativity scenes, which is a tradition that's firmly rooted in the Christian religion. However, I think the nativity story has something uh, fundamental or teaches us something fundamental about what it means to be human. Now, you probably know this, but sometimes our traditions have a way of bringing out the worst in us. I remember a couple of years ago uh, witnessing the comment section on a Facebook post, you probably know where this is going, about the nativity scene spiraling out of control. It all started when someone asked why the city, this was a city in Metro Atlanta, I was living there at the time, why the city had not put up their nativity scene yet. And this was December of 2021, not that long ago, just a couple of years ago. Uh, and one of the first comments went like this. It says something like, why is the city putting up a nativity scene to begin with? Which seems to me, and may seem to you, to be kind of a logical question. And then the next question, someone said, well, if the city's going to put up a nativity scene, they need to put up a menorah too, which is another logical perspective. But then some characters behind a keyboard jumped in and they decided they needed to defend baby Jesus, honor and rebuke the city for something like taking Christ out of Christmas. And you know how that goes. Some people are just more caustic behind a keyboard than they are in conversation. 
and it quickly got out of control. And sadly, sadly, some of the people um, that made the ugliest comments identified as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, as it turns out, there was a much less sinister reason for the absence of the nativity scene that year. It just wasn't working. And in the middle of a pandemic, it wasn't on the city's list of priorities to fix it. That makes sense as well. I think it's important for us to say that whenever our Christian traditions are no longer forming us in the way of Christ, then we've misplaced our focus, right? Whenever our Christian traditions fail to form us in the way of Christ, we're misplacing our focus. All right, that was a depressing story. That's two downers for the morning. So maybe a little humor will lighten the mood. Kim came across this picture the other day, which I thought was hilarious. It's this dog wearing a sign that says, I ate baby Jesus from the Christmas nativity scene, not looking forward to the second coming. That sign is a reminder that there are some good things on social media. There's a handful of them. Now, I've always thought it was interesting that the story of of Jesus' birth is only told in two of the four Gospels, and that it doesn't play a much more significant role in the rest of the New Testament, especially considering how fascinating some of the details of the story are. There's this young virgin who becomes pregnant, even though she's never known a man, right? There's the drama of Mary and Joseph, third trimester journey to Bethlehem, likely on foot, followed by their inability to secure adequate accommodations. There's the story that Luke tells about shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock at night when some angels appear to them out of nowhere announcing Jesus' birth. And then Matthew tells an even stranger story about Magi who followed a star to a home where Jesus was growing up and that they presented him with gifts that were absolutely not kid-friendly. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's a pretty incredible story when you think about it. And it's particular, it's peculiar that the writers of the New Testament seem largely uninterested in these details. However, as time passes in Matthew and Luke's gospel, the two that record details of this story, those two are more widely circulated. What we see is that the story of Jesus' birth secures a much more prominent role in Christian belief and tradition. In fact, as early as the second century, Theologians and church leaders had honed in on one specific detail of Jesus' birth story and enshrined it as an essential part of Christian doctrine and belief. You could probably guess what that is, the virgin birth. In fact, in the early church, there was a creed known as the Apostles' Creed. Some of you may have grown up reciting this in church. Some churches recite it every week. There was a creed known as the Apostles' Creed that attempts to summarize Christian beliefs in a way that was memorable and concise, and it starts off like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Versions of this creed started showing up in Christian literature around the middle of the fourth century, and ironically, that's about the same time the church started to celebrate Christmas. That's right. For the first 300 years of church history, there wasn't a specific date set aside to celebrate Jesus' birth. 
Rather, the birth of Jesus just got lumped in with another holiday known as Epiphany. Now, I'm sure some of you are familiar with Epiphany. It's another one of those religious holidays that is celebrated more in some traditions than than others, but it's one of the oldest Christian holidays. It's celebrated in January. Now, the word Epiphany literally means manifestation, and it recalls the day the Magi visited Jesus as the date Jesus was presented or appeared or was made manifest to the world. And this early practice of celebrating Epiphany explains why many of the oldest depictions gift, not knowing that he's going to be disappointed when he discovers it's just frankincense. <laughs> but it's like a typical toddler you see in this picture. And then there's this fifth century image, uh, mosaic from the Basilica, a basilica in Rome. And here you have two magi uh, on, the, on the right side and on the left, you have another magi. You have uh, Joseph, I think that's Joseph, that's like almost out of the frame. I won't say much about that. Uh, and, then, and then we have a um, I think this is Mary on the left, but but I don't know. Like it, the the um, it seems to be a little bit of controversy around whether that's Mary on the left, Mary, Mary on the right. Some people actually say that's Mary both. Some people say the lady on the left is um, represents the Gentile women in Jesus' lineage. I don't know. It's not really worth um, maybe thinking about, but uh, or, or arguing about, but maybe worth thinking about. But again, these early images. <laughs> These early depictions of baby Jesus seem to focus on the arrival of the Magi because their celebration of Epiphany, uh, which was a holiday that existed before Christmas. Now, the history of how Christmas came to be a holiday is a little bit fuzzy. If you look in the history books, there's a little bit of disagreement in all these theories, and no one's really absolutely certain um, but there's some theories, and I'm going to share three of them with you, and I'm going to start with my, the first one, but not because I think it's believable, but <laughs> because I like it. All right, so some people believe that Christmas can be traced back to a Roman historian by the name of Sextus Julius Africanus. Somehow, Africanus de uh, determined that the world was created, the world was created on March 25th. Now, I'm not sure whether that was science math, some kind of hallucinogen. But uh, however he made the discovery, he nailed the date down with absolute precision. And from there, somehow he reasoned that Jesus must have been born on the same date, different year, of course, but same date. And therefore, nine months later, December 25th must have been Jesus' birthday. And that's how Christmas came to be if you believe that theory. Now, I don't believe that theory, just for the record. Um, but it probably says something to me that I believe that any story with a guy named Julius Sextus, Sextus Julius Africanus is a story worth retelling. I'm just saying. All right, now the more plausible theory can be traced back to the Roman festival of Saturnalia that Ruth mentioned in the first week of the series. I think Matthew 
mentioned it last week as well. Now, Saturnalia is the most popular holiday in ancient Rome. It was celebrated every year in the middle of December, and it marked the return of longer days after the winter solstice. Isn't that what we long for? Saturnalia celebrations were festive. The food was plentiful. The drinks flowed freely, and things got a little crazy. The Roman social order was totally flipped. Even enslaved people were temporarily set free and treated as equals, businesses and schools closed so that everyone could participate in the festivities. And then at the end of Saturnalia, on December 25th, the Romans celebrated the, the birth of the god Mithra, the god of unconquerable sun. And some believe this pagan celebration evolved into what we now call Christmas. That's theory number two. Sounds kind of believable. And then there's theory number three, which suggests that Christmas was intentionally, even politically created by Constantine, the fourth century Roman emperor. You probably maybe are a little bit familiar with him. Um, one, one thing Constantine is known for is pioneering a social system in which the agenda of the Roman Empire was interwoven with the mission of the church and that these two were assumed to have the same broad agenda. It was known as Christendom. And people debate whether Constantine actually became a Christian or just used Christianity for political purposes. Now, I'm not really about debating the legitimacy of anybody's faith. However, I think we can say from our vantage point that Constantine definitely used Christianity for political purposes. In fact, he even makes it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in order to do this, he needed to undercut the pagan religions that flourished at that time in Rome. What better way to do that than to replace Mithra's birthday, December 25th, with Jesus' birthday. And now Jesus' birthday is December 25th. And voila, there is Christmas. Now, that seems like a plausible theory to me. Now, what we do know is that the church in Rome officially began celebrating Christmas on December 5th, 336 AD, right in the middle of Constantine's reign as emperor. And we do know that Christmas was exported from Rome to other parts of the world. And at that point, what we begin to see, at least in art, right, what we begin to see is that images and art depicting baby Jesus began to change. And the images started to appear that looked more like the nativity scene that we're familiar with. The focus shifted from the magi presenting gifts to baby Jesus, the kind of Jesus is old enough to reach out and grab them, to a newborn baby. Like this one that we see in the fifth century marble relief depicting baby Jesus in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, like a little burrito for those animals or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible joke. I don't know why I made that. Um, so what we see is the images begin to change. They look more like this. We see a newborn still not moving, lying in mangers. But, but, but like images like this sixth century mosaic, which depict um, an enthroned Mary, um, attended by angels holding Jesus. So what we see is that the Magi still, you kind of can't shake them. Those are still the images that we continue to see. Now, the thing I like about this picture 
is it it shows that our theology has an interesting way of making it into our art. Um, and it shows kind of what people were thinking about God at the time when you look at some of our some of our art. Now, for the most part, imagery depicting baby Jesus, uh, like this one, existed almost exclusively in churches and religious institutions until the 13th century when a guy named Francis staged the first nativity scene. Now, Francis wasn't. I feel even bad just calling him Francis. Francis wasn't just any old guy. This is St. Francis of Assisi. You may be familiar with him. You might have seen his name on churches or on buildings. Um, he's one of the more popular saints in the Catholic Church. And the life of Francis, St. Francis, super fascinating. And uh, I don't really have time to cover it in great detail this morning, but I want to try to make a long story short. You should always look at people with a side eye when they say they're going to make a long story short. But I'm really going to try this morning. So uh, St. Francis was born in Italy into a wealthy family. His father was a successful silk merchant. And as you might expect, young Francis was a stylish dresser. He was probably one of those people that never wore the same outfit twice. He had the best and brightest fabrics. Even the history books talk about how handsome he was and how well of a dresser he was. Now, people were drawn to Francis, uh, and he was always surrounded by friends. He liked to go out. He liked to party a little bit. He liked to have a good time. Uh, and typically for Francis, this included, because he, his father was wealthy and all that was being passed down to him, typically this included spending more money than the average person can afford to spend in an evening without drowning in regret the next day. Um, and maybe this explains why Francis had so many friends. But when he was about 20, he decided that he was going to go off to fight in the war, and he was taken as a prisoner of war. And while a prisoner, he got a little sick and spent a lot of time in solitude and had a lot of time to just think about the meaning of life and its purpose. And when he was released and returned home, people noticed that his behavior was a little erratic. He still liked the party, um, but he was a little less self-absorbed and he became spontaneously generous. In fact, there are several occasions when he would see someone in need and he would give them everything he had on at the time. In fact, one time he even took his clothes off and exchanged them with a man whose clothes were filthy and worn. Now, while praying in this old chapel, Francis heard a voice that said, go repair my house. He took that to mean that God literally wanted him to repair the rundown chapel that he was in. So to fund the revelation, he had this bright, not so bright idea. He went to his father's fabric shop. He took a load of expensive fabric. He loaded it on a horse, took it and sold it and sold the horse too. Then he took the money that he made and attempted to give it to the priest to fund the repairs to the chapel. The priest refused the money, probably a good idea because he knew Francis' father was going to come looking for it. He refused the money, and in frustration, St. Francis threw the money on the floor. He's not a saint at this point, so I'll probably call him Francis. And he threw the money on the floor um, and walked out. And then he went and hid in a cave. Uh, right, that was probably the best idea he had, to give his father some time to cool off. Um, but it didn't work. 
Um, because when he came out a month later, emaciated and hadn't eaten in a long time, his father was still furious. He dragged St. Francis or dragged Francis home. He beat him. He actually chained him up and locked him in a dark closet until his mother stepped in and set him free. There's nothing like a mother's love, right? Thank God for Mama Francis, uh, Mama of Assisi. I don't know. I don't know. After being released from solitary confinement, Francis seemed to be thinking more clearly. However, his zeal for works of charity and compassion, um, they weren't quenched in the slightest. In fact, he started begging for stones to restore the chapel, and he carried each stone he received and, and set it in place until the chapel was restored. Then he actually moved on and did the same thing and restored two more chapels the same way. And um, he had this deep commitment to giving his time and his resources to caring for lepers, to caring for the poor, for caring for people who were overlooked and marginalized in society. He had this deep love for all of creation and committed his life to caring for all that God created. It's a powerful legacy that he leaves for us. In 1223 AD, 800 years ago, St. Francis came up with the idea to stage a public nativity scene. Now first, and this time he's learned uh, to get permission before he does things. First, he goes to the Pope and he gets permission. And then he got some of his friends to help him set up a nativity scene in a cave in Greco, Greco, Italy. And um, there was a manger. There was hay. There were wild animals. And of course, there in that cave, there was a baby to represent baby Jesus. And people came from all over to this first live nativity scene to meditate on the meaning of Jesus' birth. Now, from that time, this idea of staging public nativity scenes at Christmas caught on. And from there, it evolved into what we see today. Now, here's a picture of an early nativity scene. This is actually, these are actually miniature figurines in a display case, if you can't tell that. They almost look like they're big. Um, but this is a picture of a nativity set from 1292. And it's, um, the artist says that he was inspired by St. Francis' live nativity scene to create this. This looks similar to what we see today in nativity scenes. Now today, nativity scenes decorate the front lawns of churches, houses, sometimes public property. Um, churches host live nativity scenes. There's a number of them happening around Montgomery County that I've seen announced in different places. People purchase little figurine sets and place them on their mantles and bookshelves. Maybe you have one in your house. I had one in my house growing up. In Spain, there's even this nativity scene, which is the world's tallest nativity scene at over 60 feet. Baby Jesus is 11 feet long. It's pretty incredible. I hope to see it one day. For many, putting up nativity scenes is a cherished holiday tradition. We literally take it out the box every year. We put it up only to put it back and do the same thing again year after year. 
Now, strangely enough, St. Francis often gets remembered as the tree-hugging, animal-loving, animal-blessing saint um, because of his deep, deep love for all of creation. But the life and legacy of St. Francis is more than that. St. Francis dedicated his life to exploring the deep mysteries of Jesus' birth portrayed in the nativity scene. And as he did, he became more and more convinced that the whole world, especially the most overlooked and forgotten, are It's not that they ignored Jesus' birth. They just didn't feel the need to wrap it in all the historical details that Matthew and Luke did. Instead, they chose to explore what Jesus' birth teaches us about God. Take, for instance, the Gospel of John right there in the beginning. In John 1.1, John writes this. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But then look, later in that same chapter, how John tells about Jesus' birth in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, John uses poetic language and word metaphors to communicate that Jesus was born as the full expression of God's divine essence. God's compassion is fully seen in Jesus, fully expressed in Jesus. God's grace is fully expressed in Jesus. God's generosity is fully expressed in Jesus. God's embrace is fully expressed in Jesus. And God's love is fully expressed in Jesus. You see, God chose to express God's own divine essence to us by humbly choosing to be born in Bethlehem. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. God became human in the most humble way. The creator became one with creation. God entered the world just like you and me. And in the silence and stillness of that night, God whispered something to the whole world that went largely unheard, but is now more fully known. And that's that you the whole world, you are loved by God just as you are. And God affirmed what was spoken at creation, at the creation of the world. It is good. You are good. It's good to be human because humans are fully loved by God. 
It's good to be part of this world because this world is fully loved by God. Richard Rohr, some of you are familiar with that name. He's a Franciscan priest. Uh, he's written a lot of books. He's part of a Franciscan as a religious order that was actually founded by St. Francis. He says this about Francis's view of Jesus' birth. He says, but for Francis, incarnation was already redemption. Incarnation was already redemption. For God to become a human being among the poor, born in a stable among the animals, meant that it's good to be a human being, that flesh is good, and that the world is good in its most simple and humble forms. That's the good news that Francis celebrated when he staged the first public nativity scene. He celebrated God's eternally echoing voice, proclaiming to everyone everywhere, you are my good and loved creation. And the birth of Jesus portrayed in the nativity scene is a physical expression. It's a reminder for us of the depth of God's love. You know, most Sundays we end with a time of reflection and response. And the band can come on up as we enter into that time now. And in this time, maybe you just need to sit and reflect on the nativity scene, the birth of Jesus, and let the truth and reality of God's deep love for you sink in. Some people like to respond by taking communion at one of the tables we have around the room. There's one in the center and two on the side. And um, they give us an opportunity to reflect on the full life of Jesus and the way the love that was born into the world was not defeated by death. Now, some like to gather in the back and light a candle and pray or at our station of lament in the back and uh, spend moments praying and reflecting and remembering. However God is working right now in your life and whatever is beneficial for you in this moment, I encourage you that as the band sings to spend some time reflecting on the nativity scene, reflecting on the birth of Jesus, reflecting on the incarnation, the fact that God became part of creation to show us fully the depth of God's love for us. Whenever you're ready, you can make your way to one of these stations. Thank mm -hmm. you.